Welcome to the Book Stories podcast. My name is Richard Davis. We speak to authors, publishers, booksellers, collectors, librarians, and other book lovers about how books have shaped their lives. Today's guest is architectural historian Catherine W. Zipf, and we're talking about The Green Book. The Green Book was a travel guide for African Americans published from 1938 to 1967. It was created by Victor Hugo Green, a postal worker from New York, who wanted to help black travelers during segregation in the United States. The guide, which of course had green covers, listed hotels, restaurants, gas stations, and other businesses that welcomed black travelers during this period of American history. Remember, this was an era when African Americans could put themselves in danger simply by stepping into the wrong place at the wrong time. Catherine is one of three people spearheading a project called The Architecture of the Negro Traveller's Green Book, which references the full title of the Green Books. This is an architectural history project that aims to record and study these important historical sites. Helped by volunteer researchers, the team is building a database that intends to list every building documented in the Green Books. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you, Richard. It's very nice to be here. Can you start by describing the green books themselves and the types of places that were listed in them? Sure. I think I should begin with a confession that I've actually never seen an original green book. They are extremely rare. And so if anybody out there in the audience has one, check your attics. Please, please, please make sure it gets into an archive somewhere near you because they're very, the originals are extremely difficult to find. But the books themselves were small, think travel-sized books, about uh, six inches by four inches, give or take, not very thick, typical size that's convenient to fit in the glove box of a car, which was, of course, what they were intended to do. Uh, you mentioned that they the covers were green. I just feel obliged to say that the last year, the 66-67 volume was was red and blue. But yeah, they were they were green. The interior of the books is somewhat unprepossessing in that there's, especially in the early years, there were just simply lists of uh, names and addresses organized by city. Um, for those of you old enough to remember a yellow pages, kind of like that. And later years have advertisements in it. But it's not a flashy book by any stretch of the imagination. It's it's a pretty you know, utilitarian, let's keep it simple people kind of a guide. So they're so. pretty humble and put together quite cheaply? Uh, yes. Victor Green really paid a, an awful lot of attention to how much money things would cost. Um, the point of the guide was to make the information as accessible as possible. And so uh, one of the the virtues of the Green Book, uh, relative to the several other books that were on the market throughout that same time period, was that the Green Book was was cost effective and, and inexpensive. Um, there were other guides that crept up towards a dollar a copy, um, five dollars a copy, and and that was expensive. And the Green Book started out as as uh, I believe it was originally twenty five cents, and then crept upwards toward towards okay. a dollar. So why is it important to remember or recognize these buildings today? Well, for starters, what we're finding in the project is how few of the buildings have survived in general. There's over overall nationally, it's looking like there's 
uh, and uh, an average percentage survival of maybe somewhere between 40, 40 to 60 percent have survived. That's pretty, pretty low. Um, we only have about information from about half of the states. Over the course of the Green Book's listings, there were tens of thousands of sites listed in them. So looking at all of them is taking some time. Yeah. Um, but we're finding uh, some places, you know, the sites have a have a high level of survival, uh, like my home state of Rhode Island, about half of them survive. And then in other places, the survival rate is much, much lower. Um, I think right now our lowest is uh, North Carolina at about 11%. And it's heartbreaking when I see this, the spreadsheets come over my desk with the lists of the buildings per state and you know, it's heartbreaking. You just watch demolished going down in that one column. And it's, it's just, you know, it's really heartbreaking. So the purpose of our project is to encourage the preservation of what remains of the sites um, in whatever way localities feel is important to do that. And there's a number of ways to do that, but it starts with information. You can't preserve what you don't know is out there. And our project right. is intended to, to answer that need. And how did it start? Well, that's a that's a good story. I uh, used to write a column for the Providence Journal. I'm based here in Rhode Island. And I always, I wrote a column on architecture, and I always looked for what I called my back pocket ideas. And uh, one day, a notice came around that the New York Public Library had uh, digitized all of the green books. And that's our main way of accessing the information, by the way. So a uh, very deep thank you to the New York Public Library's Schomburg Center for doing that. They have the best collection of original green books. I think they're missing only one year. So the notice came around. I, I'm also, I'm on about a million listservs, so I get a lot of email. And I saw the ad for it, and I was very curious. I didn't know anything about it, and I was curious. And I uh, looked up Rhode Island, and there were, eh, I don't know, six or eight sites listed for, I think that year was 1958. And so for one of those columns, I wrote about the M.A. Green Tourist Home in Providence. I went up to see if it was still there, and it was. Uh, I looked at um, old census data and found who M.A. Green was. That's Martha A. A. Green, by the way, Martha Ann Green. And it was, you know, super fun little article. I only got 700 words. And really, if my editor was being cantankerous, I really only got 650 words that particular time. So uh, you have to keep it short and sweet. and. I wrote the article and it was it went out there and I posted it on all my social media like all good architectural historians do and and my friend Anne wrote me and she said there's something here and we should do more. And I said, "Okay, what do you have in mind?" And she said, "Let's present the information, let's gather some information and present it to one of our regional professional conferences which was the Southeast chapter of the Society of Architectural Historians." Um, they had just inaugurated a poster session. So she and I put together a proposal and she lives in Maryland. So she was going to do something on Maryland sites and I was going to do something on Rhode Island sites. And then we thought, oh, golly, our, our good friend, Susan, uh, she can do Virginia and won't it be neat? We'll take these posters to the conference and see what happens. And we were accepted to the conference. And then people just kind of started coming out of the woodwork. I mean, there was a lot of interest that was generated by the Schomburg Center's digitization. So we racked up another poster on North Carolina and one on Mississippi, and off we went. Came out of the uh, the conference with another seven poster of possible projects. 
We took all 11 of those to the next professional conference, racked up a few more, went to the next professional conference, racked up a few more. And and the next thing you know, we had some 22 projects in the works for these posters. But we knew we needed to go online. Uh, the posters were beautiful. And I always had visions of at the, uh, the one of the National Smithsonian Museums, let's have a wall of posters, find your state. But the reality of it is that a database is just more useful and allows you to do a lot more things with uh, the data than you can with a poster. And the interest that was being generated in the sites uh, was raising questions that we really couldn't answer without a database. So that led to, uh, a, it's not, I, I know there you're, some of your listeners are going to say, ah, just put it up online. Um, it's really not that simple. Um, it really wasn't. And we were three. This was Anne, uh, my friend from Maryland, and Susan, my my friend from Virginia. That's, that's Anne Bruder and Susan Hellman. And the three of us really agonized over how to do this. Uh, we talked to a lot of different uh, uh, groups that might support us and finally went back to our alma mater, the University of Virginia, who has very kindly and graciously put a tremendous amount of resources into our project. And we are extremely grateful um, it is Worthy Martin at the Institute for Advanced Technologies and Humanities at UVA that has really championed this project and guided three <laughs> slightly clueless architectural historians through the process of creating a database and Drupal and spreadsheets. And so you um, now know you need clean data and clean categories and Absolutely. it needs to be searchable and things it, like that. It does, yeah. And I've learned the difference between a taxon and a taxa. So. Wow. Yeah. Databases, they're fun. So how many listings do you think there are in all of those editions of the green books for, for, for buildings? Uh, easily upwards of 50,000 listings, 50,000 establishments, right? So assumably right. a place goes along with it. Sometimes you get uh, multiple places like a restaurant and a tourist hotel might be the same place. Okay. And how many do you think you've got in the database so far? Uh, we've probably got about 20,000 so far. Yeah, you're doing well then, but you've We're been doing, doing it for a couple of years. We have, yes. What's the process for your volunteer researchers? How do they? How does it work for them? Um, so it comes about in a variety of ways. Um, the uh, I mean, We are happy to work with anybody. We do caution people that it's not the easiest of work. There's a lot of data to manage. Most states have about three or 400 uh, sites in the state. So data management, being meticulous with your information is really important. And having the persistence to look through that many sites is important as well. We get a number of people who want very much to help and then find out how difficult it is. Um, and we recognize that we're asking for volunteer labor, which not everybody is able to do at this magnitude. And that's a real barrier, particularly to um, for, for scholars of color who we would love to have their viewpoint on the project, but we recognize that this is a big challenge for them. So depending on the site the, or the state, rather, we look for a, a leader, a, a team leader who knows the geographic area. So we've got a terrific group going on right now in South Carolina, um, led by a, a librarian in um, Florence. And um, it helps because I don't know, or Ann and Susan and I don't know where things are relative to other places. Um, 
So that's very helpful. And even more helpful is if you know other people who can help you with the work. We're just finishing up New Jersey, and that's another model where I think we had 11 scholars working on some 700 sites, and they were all able to understand, oh, this person's over here, they can look at those sites, this person's over there, they can look at that site. And that's incredibly helpful. The first pass um, is to get a list of all of the sites, um, which necessitates looking at each and every Green Book issue. And we were very fortunate. Again, UVA has been incredibly kind to us. They deployed two student workers, and we were able to um, uh, employ them to do the initial listing, um, which was to go through each of the Green Books for each state and then look through and, and, and list them. And that process captures the initial round of data, the name of the establishment, the um, address, uh, the date it was listed in the green book. And then what was it? Was it a restaurant? Was it a tourist home? And so they do that that first pass. And ideally, what we're able to do to our state rep- for our state representative is hand them that data, and then they either work on it themselves, and a lot of them do, or they deploy people, they round up people. And, and we do try where we have interest. Somebody comes to us and says, I'm interested in working on Pennsylvania. We try to put them together into teams. Um, that works. That doesn't work. It really depends. Um, the first pass of information is latitude and longitude, and then whether the site still stands. And if they can get all that information back into us, then we usually upload it directly into the database at that point. Do they go to the address? Well, hopefully they do. A, a fair number of people work from Google Earth, which you know, is mostly accurate. Um, and that's fine, uh, although we prefer that they go to the space. Um, in a few cases, that's uh, geographically not desirable. We've got a fabulous team working in Texas, but Texas is a very large state and mm-hmm. it's not so easy to duck down to, you know, El Paso from, <laughs> from Austin um, at the drop of a hat. Whereas, you know, here in, in Rhode Island, I have the luxury, I can circle the state in an hour. So uh, yeah, it, it really depends. We would like them to, and what we, we really hope for are pictures. What does it look like? What's the condition? Um, what kind of preservation challenges are there? And then the second round, once things are, once the information is into the database, then we look for people to upload images and write histories if they can. And that depends a great deal on how far they are able to go into the research. It's, it's one thing to look up a site. Is it still there? What, what is the latitude and longitude? And a lot of ta- times, if the site is no longer there, if we've got an experienced architectural historian who knows the area and knows its history, they'll know you know, this, this address no longer exists, but I knew it used to be here. And that's right. helpful. Do they say what is there now if the business name has changed, which I guess it may well have done in many cases, or it's been replaced by a different building, which is possible? Yeah, we usually, so there's there's three parts to that. Uh, one is, is the, the business itself still there? Um, and there are green book businesses that survive into the present day, the actual establishments um, relatively speaking, there's not very many. Those are yeah. rare finds, um, and they're usually delightful rare finds. Um, the second tier is whether the building itself has survived and does it survive in the same use as it did before. So if it was a garage, is it still a garage? Um, and then the last is, um, and so it you know, has it or hasn't it. And then the, the last piece is it's the, the building itself is gone. Um, and we usually stop at that point. I mean, it's a lot of data to manage, and right. you know, we like to draw some lines on, on what everybody's doing. Right. Are you finding that your researchers are, 
discovering any sort of stories about the establishments that survived or were notable at the time or anything interesting emerging that you, you'd like to highlight? Oh boy, the stories every day, uh, the stories come out and I encourage people to just browse through the database. You'll see, uh, you can click through uh, the establishments, particularly if you happen to live in a state where we've already got information um, uh, input. There, the, the stories are there. Um, how extensive the stories are really depend on the researchers and it's a lot of work uh, to, to put together a site history is a lot of work. This is really um, micro, it's untapped history, I think, in many ways. It's local history. And I think a good way to describe it is it's really micro history. Uh, I'm just going to use my home state, Rhode Island, as an example, because I, I know it so well. Uh, and I did all those histories. I uh, have a handful of sites where I've really had, I think, really good and interesting stories that speak to uh, how this landscape of African-American travel operated. So we have um, a good example is the Heinz Tourist Home um, on Main Street in Providence. And it um, was both a restaurant and a tourist home. And it flipped back and forth, restaurant, tavern, tourist home, um, restaurant, tourist home, tavern. And you can see that the Heinz were kind of a big, important family when you really sit down to look at them. Um, another would be uh, the the Johnson House, Jackson House, sorry, in um, Newport. It, it, uh, it was listed on Bath Road, 35 Bath Road. And that was one where when I presented around Newport, people would come to me and say, oh, I remember that house. And they would tell me stories about the people who were living there. Um, so behind the scenes are really interesting stories. And they give us a good window into the movement of African-American travel. So again, to go back to the um, the Jackson House, when I was researching the Jackson house, I couldn't find anybody named Jackson associated with it. There was nothing on the deeds. There was nothing on the censuses. There was nothing on the, the directories, which are like phone books. Um, and uh, instead, what I found were three women. Two of them were from Maryland and one was from Virginia, if I recall correctly. And they have that backwards. Um, and they had all been part of the Great Migration. And they had moved up to Newport and over time were running this, this tourist home. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. And if you think about it, um, and I think you do have to think about it in, to, in, to a certain extent in this way, this is a very um, risky thing that people are doing, listing in the Green Book, I think. If you are looking to provide safe passage for African-Americans, there's a segment of the population that doesn't want you to do that. And so I would imagine that in order to just preserve your own safety, you would be interested in creating a moment of deniability, a moment where you could say, no, we don't do that, or you have us mistaken, or something like that. So somebody shows up on your doorstep and says, I'm looking for the Jackson Tourist Home. You have a moment to look them over and say, yes, this is the Jackson Tourist Home, or no, nobody named Jackson lives here. You, you're, you must be mistaken, sir. And I've wondered about that. We've come across that in a number of other places. Um, but I think that there's, again, once you really look at the histories and, and you read between the lines a little bit, um, you, you see stories like that. And I, I think those are fascinating. You said micro history, but it's really mundane history. Like These are gas stations and hotels, which no one really takes much notice of right everyone's looking for castles and grand canyons and things like that when they go on the holidays but these are incredibly important in terms of the services they offered 
at the time. I mean, if you research and read a little bit about the, the era and you encounter the sunset towns, it suddenly becomes, travel suddenly becomes terrifying, really. Very much so. And these travel guides, which began again in 1938 for Victor Green, uh, were very necessary and vital to movement during the Great Migration, during the Jim Crow era. And um, it, it, it's really a moment, I think, where um, where Black America is is almost forming a diaspora, if you will. There's a great deal of connections. We hear stories, for example, about um, people who have moved to, say, Detroit for all the opportunities that working in uh, working for the automobile manufacturers are going to allow them to do that they're not going to get in, say, you know, Louisiana, Mississippi. Um, but there's still a lot, they're culturally still connected to the family that they, they have back in Southern states. So there's a lot of movement in circles back and forth between cities like Cleveland and New Orleans. Um, so one of the things you will see, and the data shows it, is strong connections along routes of travel. There are lots of green book sites that go along highways. Right. And it speaks to the patterns of movement of this community, which, this, which is really a, a nationwide community. But you're right, it's small trips, micro history. And, and you are absolutely right that uh, the buildings themselves are mundane, Um Every now and then you come up with something that that's really quite spectacular. And there's a lot of spectacular modernism, uh, especially in the South. Uh, but uh, mostly they are nondescript buildings. You wouldn't think to drive by them. Any of your listeners is welcome to look up George's service station in Providence. And um, boy, is that, you know, <laughs> a building you'd drive by and think, boy, they better tear, tear that thing down. I mean, it's George's you know, or George's George's service station. G-E-O-R-G-E. Yep. It's uh, it's not a thing of beauty. Well, I presume some of these establishments would not have been in the core downtown. They might have been on the fringes of town. Would that be correct? Well, some of them are and some of them aren't. And uh, Anne and Susan, my uh, compadres, have more sites than I do that are listed as something like on Route 2, eight miles outside of town. And, right. you know, we have no idea where that is. Yeah. Um, sometimes if you're lucky, you can kind of start at what used to be the old center of downtown, drive about eight miles down Route 2 and you'll see something. If you're lucky, uh, that's yeah. where Google is not a help. But a lot of times we really have to do a lot of digging to figure out where those sites are. The country, uh, cities have maps, uh, historic maps that are very helpful. But outside of those maps in the outskirts of towns, a lot of times it's very difficult to find those those sites. Um, but more often than not, the sites were in cities and you find them clustered in African-American neighborhoods. And so that's part of why many of them are gone. Um, the highways came in. They often went right through black neighborhoods. And yep. there goes, you know, eight green book sites with one fell swoop of I-95. Um, right. So yeah, so Anne will tell you in downtown Baltimore, that's what happened to a whole host of green book sites was I-95 went through. So how did Victor um, Hugo Green get the information, get the listings to go in his books? So we don't know for sure. There aren't a lot of office records. And this is a good moment to just point out to listeners that this was all done before computers. So I would love to know, I mean, what is he keeping it all on index cards? Does he have a big card catalog? I mean, I would just love to know how, how is he managing the data? 
just to begin with. I think that's an incredible thing to ask. Um, and more, and I more think about that because I am too managing his data. So I would like to know what his secrets are. Um, but he got them very clearly through, um, so he didn't visit all of his listings. I mean, I think he did. He was based in New York and I think he probably made a, a, a concerted effort to make sure that he had been to the local ones, but across the country, there was no way he could do that. So many of his listings, um, and again, we don't know for sure, but they are very clearly came word of mouth, maybe by telephone, um, recommendations from people he knew. Um, you could write into the Green Book and, and offer, hey, I stayed at this terrific place. You should add that to your listings. Um, establishments themselves could volunteer to go in the Green Book. Um, so there were a number of ways that that happened. And we see errors that suggest uh, that the telephone was a key part of it or some sort of oral communication was part of it because we see things um, lots of, of I mean, so there's lots of small error, errors like um, uh, 85 meeting street becomes 58 meeting street. Um, you know, a, a very understandable yeah. error and, and happened all the time. But we also see something like, again, I'm, I'm looking at a site in Newport, which is Ma Gruber's tourist home. And so you have this sort of down home feeling to it, right? Ma Gruber, M-A space G-R-U-B-E-R. Yeah. And that wasn't it at all. The, the name of the owner uh, who owned the site was uh, Magruder. Right. So you hear, uh, you can see how over the telephone that might yeah. get garbled. So that might have been called in and called they didn't in. quite catch it. Didn't quite catch it. Wow. Yeah. And um, what's known about Victor? Well, not as much as we should, but uh, there's a terrific book by uh, Candace Taylor, who writes about. Uh, she called it's called Overground Railroad, and she has she's right now she's the expert on Victor Victor Green. Um, what is known about him? She was very fortunate to meet with his family, and and that's the place to go if you're looking for uh, that history. And, and that's to say, um, our interest is in the sites themselves and in the architecture of the sites themselves. And so uh, the general history is really all Candace's bag. And she's done a terrific job. Uh, I think there are many places where you can hear her speak about it. Um, and her book is wonderful. At the start, you mentioned that you've never uh, seen the original Green Book. I also have never seen the original Green Book. I've seen a facsimile, which gave me a taste of how humble they are. So you mentioned that they're digitized. Is it a New York Public Library that have a digitized collection? Yes, the Schomburg Center has uh, the digital collection. And of course, you can Google it, but we do have a link to that on our website, on the, the Green Book website. Yeah, they're fantastically scarce. Yes, and Anne tried initially when we started this project, she went to try and go look for one. And I think she found one in an archive in, I, I want to say, Louisiana. But Okay, uh, so my final question uh, sorry, my second to final question. Um, <laughs> as an architectural historian, what are you learning? So you've been doing this for a few years. What are your What are your learnings? You've learned about a database, but what else? Um, so what have I learned? I it has revolutionized what I define architecture to be. I've always thought, thought that I've been pretty open minded about buildings. Um, I have a PhD in architectural history, so I know a lot about buildings. But it really uh, brought a new appreciation for the everyday landscape that I had realized I was missing. And it comes alive to me to understand these sites, to get to go and look at one and stand in front of one and say, that's a Green Book site, and I want to save it. And it comes alive in a way for me that I think is um, 
something that's missing in our world. I think today we're quick to look at an old building and say we got to replace the windows and gut the interior so we can live in a different way than we used to. So I find myself with a new appreciation for the everyday landscape, along with a certain impatience for high style buildings that I hadn't had before. Um, I learned a lot about my own limitations as a white scholar uh, studying African American history. There's uh, I, all I can really do is create the framework um, and uh, the database and, and hope that in the future this information is useful. But those communities study privately outside of of white scholars, and so I will I will never really know what this what the end product of this information is. My hope is that two in the morning armchair scholars are looking at it and you know, thinking, yeah, that's, that's the, the establishment, my dad or granddad or grandmother, because there's a lot of women running establishments. Um, and I hope that there's a pride that there's a place out there that acknowledges that history. Um, even if it never gets back to me that we've done it, um, that would be wonderful. Back home in the UK, uh, historic buildings that are just like regular houses, they get blue plaques that said, Dickens lived here for five years and wrote Oliver Twist or something like that, or such and such was here for five years. And you see them out there and they're very common. Um, I wonder if you could have plaques for surviving green book sites, a green plaque. Yeah. So Virginia is working on that and they've passed legislation that will mark the green, the sites, all of the sites listed in the green book. And that's exactly the kind of effort that our database, I mean, we're incredibly proud and honored that our work made that possible. We were able to give the state legislature of Virginia, for goodness sake, a list of green book sites, where they were, how long they'd been listed, what was still standing, what wasn't. Um, so that that kind of work is incredibly rewarding. And the uh, that, you know, so the government moves slowly. Um, I don't know yet what the actual marker will look like. And I my understanding from from Susan Hellman, um, who's been deeply involved in this effort, is that they will be putting markers in the sidewalks in front of the sites. Um, because that is public space, as opposed to actually on the buildings, where you have you're really counting on owners to um, you know honor that and and be a part of that. Yeah. Um, and that that doesn't always happen. I I run a plaque program here in Rhode Island, and I you know the plaques we put on 50 years ago, many of them aren't there anymore. So yeah. this is a much more I think concrete way of doing it. All right. So my uh, final question is, uh, what book or books? are you currently reading? So I'm one of the people that reads multiple books at the same time. And this was very difficult uh, for my husband to grasp at the time. Um, I also fall asleep over them. So I sleep with books. Um, so I, at the moment, uh, I think I'm down to about three books because I just finished one um, and they range wildly. So everybody should, uh, you know, hold on, buckle your seatbelts and hold on. Um, so the major book that I'm reading right now is a book called Sideshow by William Shawcross, and that's about the American uh, illegal bombing and invasion of Cambodia during the Vietnam War. Um, I'm reading that for, I run a book club, a nonfiction book club, so we're, we're reading that for that. And it's turned out to be, it's a wonderful book, uh, but it's turned out to be quite dense, a little more than I expected. So that's why that's <laughs> on the, the front of my, um, of my, uh, my list. Um, so that, uh, and then, um, the, the, I just, I have, and then I get a trashy book for, for late in the evenings when I'm tired. So I, I just finished, a uh, a fabulous trashy romance and my daughter has put, um, Shadow and Bone in front of me. So I'm going to be reading Shadow and Bone. Oh, right. That's yeah. next. 
Yeah, my youngest is a big Shadow and Bone fan. Yes, yes. She's distraught with me that I've put it off for so long. (laughs) All right. Okay, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank Catherine W. Zipf for joining us. Thank you again, Richard. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Catherine is an architectural historian, and she's been involved in a project called The Architecture of the Negro Traveler's Green Book. And you can learn more about that by visiting community.village.virginia.edu slash greenbooks. And you can find more information at that website. Thanks for listening. My name is Richard Davis, and I'll see you again soon.